Welcome to Eddie Hurst's podcast version of The War of the Worlds. An audio scrapbook of H.G. Wells' seminal novel, The The War of the Worlds. Because that's like, it's in the title of the show, isn't it? Hello, and welcome to Eddie Hurst's podcast version of The War of the Worlds, Chapter 2, The Falling Star. This is an audio scrapbook where each week we read a chapter of H.G. Wells' seminal novel, The The War of the Worlds. I mean, could, could you imagine if it was like... if at this point, I just was reading The Time Machine. With added additional research, songs inspired by the story, and whatever other bits and bobs leap out of the page and into my brain. If you haven't heard the show before, welcome, thanks for joining us. Uh, but also, what are, you, what are you doing, mate? There's only another, this is the second episode, there's only one one other. Go, go listen. Don't worry, we'll, we'll wait here for you. Go on. You back? Okay, good. So last week, we set the scene, met our narrator a man dedicated to learning to ride the bike and understand the human condition through philosophical papers in that order, specifically. We met his friend, Ogilvy the astronomer, and some strange lights in the sky. This week, will we find out about the crash landing? Will we meet a half-deaf journalist? Will the narrator finally ride a bike? Yes, yes, and no, in that order. Uh, also, I'm aware that like, I just did a recap, so if you if you just skipped from before, instead when I told you to listen to the first episode, I know I just gave you a recap, but I would I put a lot of effort into that first episode, so if you could go back and listen now, even though it's going to happen, I'd appreciate that. Let's get started! Wait, no, sorry. Uh, if you like the show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review on wherever you get podcasts. Why not share it with others on social media? This is how podcasts work, so... I've got it out of the way now, I'll say at the end, and then we can just enjoy our lives. Okay, let's go. Uh, no, wait, no, sorry, one more thing. This week we've got some great guests on. I've got some great comedy friend guests. Uh, we've got Josh Jones and Hannah Platt. Uh, they lent some of their voices to some of the dialogue, which has been a little revamped for the kids. Uh, or just for anyone listening. I mean, you don't have to be a child to listen to it. You'll hear more from them a few episodes later on in the podcast too. So, here we go. Chapter 2. The Falling Star Then came the night of the first falling star. It was seen early in the morning, rushing over Winchester eastward, a line of flame high in the atmosphere. Hundreds must have seen it, and taken it for an ordinary falling star. Albin described it as leaving a greenish streak behind it that glowed for some seconds. Denning, our greatest authority on meteorites, stated that the height of its first appearance was about 90 or 100 miles. It seemed to him that it fell to earth about 100 miles east of him. I was at home at that hour and writing in my study, and although the French windows faced towards Ottershaw and the blind was up, for I loved in those days to look up at the night sky, I saw nothing of it. Yet this strangest of all things that ever came to earth from outer space must have fallen while I was sitting there, visible to me had I only looked up as it passed. Some of those who saw its flight say it travelled with a hissing sound. I myself heard nothing of that. Many people in Berkshire, Surrey and Middlesex must have seen the fall of it and, at most, have thought that another meteorite had descended. All those, uh, all those meteorites that we get. You know, all them meteorites? Oh, come on, let's go out dancing. Oh, no, I can't for all the meteorites around here in Berkshire, Surrey and Middlesex. No one seems to have troubled to look for the fallen mass that night, but very early in the morning poor Ogilvy, who had seen the shooting star and who was persuaded that a meteorite lay somewhere on the common between Horsell, Ottershaw and Woking, rose early with the idea of finding it 
find it he did, soon after dawn, and not far from the sandpits. An enormous hole had been made by the impact of the projectile, and the sand and gravel had been flung violently in every direction over the heath, forming heaps visible a mile and a half away. The heather was on fire eastward, and a thin blue smoke rose against the dawn. Metaphor alert! Metaphor alert! Heather on fire! Nature being attacked by Martians! Metaphor alert! The thing itself lay almost entirely buried in sand. Amidst the scattered splinters of a fir tree, it had shivered to fragments in its descent. Metaphor alert! Metaphor alert! Fir tree shivered to fragments! The uncovered part had the appearance of a huge cylinder, caked over and its outline softened by a thick, scaly, dun-coloured incrustation. It had a diameter of about 30 yards. He approached the mass, surprised at the size and more so at the shape, since most meteorites are rounded more or less completely. It was, however, still so hot from its flight through the air as to forbid his near approach. A stirring noise within its cylinder he ascribed to the unequal cooling of its surface, for at that time it had not occurred to him that it might be hollow. Remember that sound of school you do? You do a little face, you go... Yeah. Remember that? Remember that? I remember that. I remember that. He remained standing at the edge of the pit that the thing had made for itself, staring at its strange appearance, astonished chiefly at its unusual shape and colour, and dimly perceiving even then some evidence of design in its arrival. The early morning was wonderfully still, and the sun, just clearing the pine trees towards Weybridge, was already warm. He did not remember hearing any birds that morning. There was certainly no breeze stirring, and the only sounds were the faint movements from within the cindery cylinder. He was all alone on the common. Or so he thought. That's not in the book. Then, suddenly, he noticed with a start that some of the grey clinker the ashy incrustation that covered the meteorite was falling off the circular edge of the end. It was dropping off in flakes and raining down upon the sand. A large piece suddenly came off and fell with a sharp noise that brought his heart into his mouth. For a minute, he scarcely realised what this meant. And, although the heat was excessive, he clambered down into the pit close to the bulk to see the thing more clearly. He fancied even then the cooling of the body might account for this. But what disturbed that idea was the fact that the ash was falling only from one end of the cylinder. And then he perceived that, very slowly, the circular top of the cylinder was rotating on its body. It was such a gradual movement that he discovered it only through noticing that a black mark that had been near him five minutes ago was now at the other end of the circumference. Even then he scarcely understood what this indicated, until he heard a muffled grating sound and saw the black mark jerk forward an inch or so. Then the thing came upon him in a flash. That thing is not the thing that I'm using the thing sound... Like, I'm using the thing theme tune for the thing, but this is just the thing, little t. So the thing, this, this thing is an idea. So this, this, the thing, that's just a thought. But the other, the thing, that's, that's the Martian. That's the Martians, baby. The cylinder was artificial, hollow with an end that screwed out. Something within the cylinder was unscrewing the top. This week's episode, Hannah Platt will be playing the role of Ogilvy the Astronomer.
At once, with a quick mental leap, he linked the thing. That's the thing. With the flash upon Mars. The thought of the confined creature was so dreadful to him that he forgot the heat and went forward to the cylinder to help turn. But luckily, the dull radiation arrested him before he could burn his hands on the still glowing metal. At that, he stood irresolute for a moment, then turned, scrambled out of the pit, and set off running wildly into Woking. The time then must have been somewhere about six o'clock. He met a wagoner and tried to make him understand, but the tale he told and his appearance were so wild, his hat had fallen off in the pit, that the man simply drove on. He was equally unsuccessful with the pot man. Hey, it's me, the explaining lad. Sorry, I was just doing an ollie on my skateboard. What with me growing up and being 11 now, I'm here to explain what's going on with the pot man. So, pot men were people who collected pots. You know, pints and that from a pub. Ba basically, it's just somebody who works at a pub. It's a pub, pub man. All right, bye, hang loose, shaka! <laughs> who was just unlocking the doors of the public house by Horsell Bridge. The fellow thought he was a lunatic at large. Lunatic, lunatic at large. Lunatic, lunatic at large. And made an unsuccessful attempt to shut him into the tap room. That sobered him a little. Sobered him a little? Uh, lock in a pub? That's uh, not going to sober him, is it? <laughs> and when he saw Henderson, the London journalist, in his garden, the role of Henderson, the London journalist, will be performed by Josh Jones. What's my direction? He called over the palings and made himself understood. Henderson! What are you saying? Henderson stood up with his spade in his hand. He was deaf in one ear. Henderson, did you see the shooting star last night? It's out on Horsell Common now. Ogilvy told him all that he had seen. Henderson was a minute or so taking it in. Oh, fucking hell. A meteorite, that's alright, isn't it? But it's something more than a meteorite. It's a cylinder. An artificial cylinder, man. There's something inside. Then he dropped his spade, snatched up his jacket, and came out into the road. I ain't got a bloody clue what you're going on about, but it sounds fun. The two men hurried back at once to the common, and found the cylinder still lying in the same position. But now the sounds inside had ceased, and a thin circle of bright metal showed between the top and the bottom of the cylinder. Air was either entering or escaping at the rim with a thin, sizzling sound. They listened, wrapped on the scaly burnt metal with a stick, and, meeting with no response, they both concluded the men or men inside must be insensible or dead. Or dead. Insensible or dead. Insensible or dead. Insensible or dead. Insensible or dead.
the two men were quite unable to do anything. They shouted consolation and promises and went off back to the town to get help. One can imagine them, covered with sand, excited and disordered, running up the little street in the bright sunlight just as the shop folk were taking down their shutters and people were opening their bedroom windows. Henderson went into the railway station at once in order to telegraph the news to London. The newspaper articles had prepared men's minds for the reception of the idea. By eight o'clock, a number of boys and unemployed men Boys and unemployed men, coincidentally, is actually my target demographic for listeners of this podcast had already started for the common to see the dead men from Mars. That was the form the story took. I heard of it first from my newspaper boy about a quarter to nine when I went out to get my daily chronicle. I was naturally startled and lost no time in going out and across the Ottershaw Bridge to the Sandpits. There's been a whole lot to take in in this chapter, you know, a hollow object, something being insensible or dead, heavy-handed metaphors about nature, but if you ask me, I think the real theme of this episode has been... THE NEWS! DEAD MEN FROM MARS! DAILY TELEGRAPH! MEN'S MIND HAS BEEN PREPARED FOR... THE NEWS! <laughs> But all the mentions got me thinking, what would news be like to a Victorian in that time? How would one find out about Martians back then? Surely some time in between scrabbling for cotton underneath the screaming jaws of a spinning mule. And in a time when you could legally drink in any establishment across Queen Victoria's realm from the age of 13, would you even really care about the news? As it turns out, yes! Well, maybe you wouldn't. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm not you, a hypothetical Victorian. All I've got is Google and a little cupboard in my garage that I sit to record all this stuff in. But during the time of the War of the Worlds publication, newspapers could hardly be described as new. <laughs> the very first newspaper in the UK was the Oxford Gazette in 1665, probably going on about the Great Plague of London, typical English newspapers. Help, our capital is suffering a plague. Boo-hoo. You know what I want to hear about? I want to hear about the agricultural revolution across the country. That's, uh, that's the news I want to I wanna hear about. But through the 1800s, big changes in the hat game were afoot. Change number one. Steam-powered printing meant papers could be made quicker. Like Optimus Prime in a sauna, these new machines were slick and mean and printed newspaper in a mighty, uh, st stream. Change number two. Increase in literacy. In 1870, a law was put in place making school mandatory for children aged 5 to 10. Meaning that more and more people could read. Newspapers were no longer just a reserve of the rich and educated, but could be enjoyed by the poor and educated. Change number three. Telegraphs and daily papers. The introduction of telegraph wires meant that news could travel much quicker across the whole country. Rather than a journalist report reaching print by mail, the story could be wired over from one train station or post office directly to the editor. News could be disseminated not just on a weekly or bi-weekly basis, but now every day. 
Hey, boss, I got a real hot scoop. Oh, yeah, what is it? You got legs for days and an ass that won't quit. You've done it again, Mitchell. Front page. With the reduction in wait time for information to spread, more people reading, and an increase in production, newspapers were the hottest ticket in town for the latest from wars, politics, local fires, adverts, wars, literary reviews, job availability, and of course, wars. Pubs across the country would advertise in their front windows they had a copy of the paper, with dedicated reading rooms. Here, people would gather to read the papers, usually with somebody reading the stories aloud amidst group discussion, comment, and beer. Okay, lads, every time someone mentions the corn exchange, we drink! You could rock up to any public house and be guaranteed to find a copy of anything from the Morning Herald, the Morning Mercury, the Morning Post, the Midday Chronicle, the Elevensies Advertiser, the Early Afternoon Report, the Late Evening Gossip, and of course, the Midnight Gospel. The War of the Worlds was even originally published in a monthly periodical rather than as a whole book. It could be seen as part of the growing genre of journalism-style novels influenced by daily reporting at the time. So, most people would definitely have cared about the news, and actually those boys and unemployed many mentions at the crash site were likely first on the scene, not just because they didn't have anything to do, but actually because they were the first people to hear of the news in the latest printed papers available. It's really interesting to me how many images and ideas we have about Victorian times that turn out not really to be the case. Stuff about like the, t- the time that kids weren't in school, it makes me think that everyone was, was uneducated and illiterate and they were, they were in a situation where they were forced into being a cog in some giant industrial machine. But actually, uh, records from the 1830s show that men's literary rates were about 60% at that time and women's were just under 50%. So it can be a little misleading to think that it was only the acts of state that led to the improvement in education and in fact social reformers did a lot of good. Uh, there's not really a joke there, it's just that unionisation of labour and individual acts of compassion coupled with a desire for betterment played a part in the structural changes of our nation and our education. People have always wanted to stay informed, whether it's about the Crimean War or Martian invasions, and it's no different now, really. I mean, honestly, it wasn't that long ago since there was that war in the Crimea, was there? And, uh, you know, you still get those articles online about life on Mars, and things haven't really changed, have they? Wow, God, that's depressing. I think often that whilst we're far more technologically advanced than the Victorian and Edwardian era, our attitudes haven't actually wildly changed. With news now, we have rolling 24-hour channels and social media. Since the 1980s, we've had a constant stream of news available to come out of the glowing sluice of our televisions and right into our eyes. Then, in the early mid-90s, up to the second, news websites came along. And now you've got a little brick in your pocket that will tell you everything going on in the world from hundreds of different angles. And with that comes a greater level of competition from news outlets, leading to sensationalism and polarising opinions. Fake news and all that, you know, whatever the fuck we decide that means this week. And it's difficult, you know, like, just today, I thought for the interests of this, I'd look at coronavirus, you know, the reason why we're all stuck indoors, and 5G, the latest conspiracy theory that 5G masks are causing coronavirus which is just just absolutely wrong and incorrect there is nothing nothing to show that there's even if you do the research there's very little there's no information that is reliable that will show that 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 is the case but when i put that into a search engine of my choice the top hits are either explaining what the theory is saying what people are doing to the 5g towers or asking if it's true not a single one is immediately saying straight away hey 
you should uh, definitely stop spending time thinking about this as there's absolutely no connection and there's vastly more important things to be spending energy on right now. All of this to get people to read articles and websites more. But if you just went on those headlines alone, you'd be forgiven for thinking that this is a much bigger issue than something that is in the same vein as believing Elvis Presley went back to space instead of dying. Even the government advice only says in a little description there's no evidence. The, the headline is, Whoa, is there a relationship between 5G and Corona? That's the world we live in for our news now. On the other hand, we've never been able to provide a platform for so many different perspectives. Uh, the week of recording this, America has seen protests across the nation after the George Floyd murder, and a huge opportunity for unheard voices to finally get a platform and lead to a nuanced discussion of systemic racism within America and the UK. Uh, there's also been a lot of knee-jerk reactionary bigotry too. I guess what I'm saying is whilst access to information has increased even more so, the essential desire for knowledge hasn't. That's what Wells talks about in this novel, you know, the imagery of a half-deaf journalist reporting a story that, spoiler alert, turns out not to be correct could uh, just as easily be the case now as it was then. I suppose what you could say is that many elements of the War of the Worlds are so resonant of the society we live in that they're true to this day, probably one of the main reasons the story has endured so well. So there we have it, a half-deaf reporter, Burning Heather, and the information that if a man is walking around without a hat, they're clearly a lunatic. It's all heating up, and I'm not just talking about the hollow cylinder. Join us next week as news of the crash landing spread in Chapter 3 on Horsell Common. Eddie Hurst's podcast version of The War of the Worlds is created and produced by Eddie Hurst, written by Eddie Hurst and H.G. Wells. Special thanks to this episode to Josh Jones and Hannah Platt. Josh can be found on at Jones on Twitter and Instagram, and listen to his podcast Dead Drama, a history show where he looks at the hottest gossip from the deadest people. Hannah can be found giving her searing hot takes, she's going to hate me for saying that, at Hannah the Platt on Twitter and Instagram and everywhere. Also, special mentions to How Stuff Works, Andrew Hobbs, NC State University and Press Gazette for articles in helping with the news coverage research. Please subscribe and give the podcast a five-star review as it helps get the word out. And follow me at Eddie Hurst for the latest podcast news and more. Okay, thank you very much. See you later. See you next week at Horsell Common. Bye!